All right, thank you again to our praise team. We're so blessed to have so many who participate in our praise teams, in our praise band, all to the glory of God, and we're so appreciative uh, for them, uh, for those who put together the, the uh, schedule of service and the songs and all of that. It takes a lot of work, and we're so grateful for them, so thank you so much for that. Let me invite you to take your Bibles and turn to John chapter 8. If you're uh, visiting with us today, we're working our way through the Gospel of John. And it has been a rather long uh, journey to get us to this point. We're about halfway through, and we're about a year plus into our exposition of the Gospel of John. And uh, I have found it to be very rich and very challenging in my own personal study. And uh, as many pastors might say, um, that, you know, we, because we're in it all week long, uh, it really hits us in a way that we hope <laughs> uh, that we can uh, translate it to hit you in the very same way. But uh, this is an enriching account of the life of Christ, and uh, he is less than six months from the cross as we look at our passage for today, and again, very poignant, very powerful, and uh, we look forward to getting into all of this today. Well, as is uh, usually the case, we do tend to overdo things in America. I know that's no surprise to any of you, but a good example of that reality is that it seems like we'll celebrate just about anything, right? For instance, today, Sunday, November the 5th, is American Football Day. It's Daylight Savings Day. It's National Redhead Day. It's Gunpowder Day. It's National Chinese Takeout Day. It's National Eric Day. It's National Luke Day. It's World Tsunami Awareness Day. And of all things, it is Zero Tasking Day. And I think some people celebrate that every day, but today is Zero Tasking Day. But, but it wasn't always that way. It, it wasn't always that way. Even a day like Father's Day that we now all just take for granted took decades for government officials to finally recognize it as a national holiday. While Mother's Day was declared a national holiday in 1914, it wasn't until 1972 that Father's Day received received the same declaration. And as you may know, Father's Day celebrated the third Sunday of every June each year, And the history of Father's Day is very interesting. It goes all the way back to 1908 when a church in West Virginia held a service to honor 362 men who had been killed the previous year in a coal mining explosion. As far as we can tell, that was the country's first ever event to strictly honor fathers, but it was really just a one-and-done thing. The following year, however, a woman by the name of Sonora Smart Dodd began to push for an annual national day of recognition for fathers. As one of six children raised by a single father, Dodd thought that fathers should be honored in the same way as mothers. And so she petitioned her local community and her local government that year, and her efforts finally paid off. Dodd's home state of Washington celebrated its first official Father's Day on June the 19th, 1910. And then over the years, the celebration of Father's Day spread from state to state, and after a long fight, it was finally declared a national holiday in 1972 when President Richard Nixon signed it into law. 
So it, it took over 60 years from the birth of the idea for Father's Day to actually be recognized as a federal holiday. And I mention all of that because it's always been a big deal as to who someone's father is. Take the genealogies in the Bible, for example. The, it was customary to list only the fathers of the family when describing someone's lineage. And, and, and we all understand this. We all get it. The truth is, much of our identity centers around who our father is. I can remember being uh, referenced as Rich's boy. Oh, that's Rich's boy, Dave. Or you might have a story of where you were introduced in the same way, but it's always been a big deal as to who our father is. And all of this is in play as we examine our passage for this morning. And so with that in mind, I want to read the text for you, and then we're going to work at making more sense of it. So if you're in John chapter uh, 8, look at verse 37. Verse 37, I know that you are Abraham's descendants, and yet you seek to kill me because my word has no place in you. I speak the things which I have seen with my father, therefore you also do the things which you have heard from your father. And they answered and said to him, Abraham is our father. And Jesus said to them, if you are Abraham's children, do the deeds of Abraham. But as it is, you're seeking to kill me. A man who has told you the truth, which I heard from God, this Abraham did not do. You are doing the deeds of your father. And they said to him, we were not born of fornication. We have one father, God. And Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. For I proceeded forth and have come from God. For I have not even come on my own initiative, but he who sent me. Why do you not understand what I am saying? It is because you cannot hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks, he lies. He speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I speak the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I speak truth, why do you not believe me? He who is of God hears the words of God. For this reason, you do not hear them because you are not of God. <coughs> and so, as we look at this this morning, we're going to find that there are really two major assertions that were made by those who were gathered in the temple listening to Jesus. Now, if you've been with us over the course of our journey through this part of John chapter 8, you realize this is one continuous story that we've kind of broken up into sections. But this is one continuous situation where Jesus is teaching in the temple, the most highly visible place in Judaism, and there is a crowd that is gathered around him. And where we in our mind's eye, we think perhaps that Jesus may be seated uh, as the rabbis would normally do, and the people would be standing, or perhaps they were seated as well. But there's a, a large crowd. In my mind's eye, I'm thinking maybe a crowd of 200 people, maybe 300 people that are gathered there in that location as Jesus begins 
to teach. And we've learned as we've gone through this story and we continue to break it up into its respective parts that this is an ongoing conversation that Jesus is having with these people. And these people are represented by the scribes and the Pharisees who also are there at the time. Uh, These are the religious people. These are the ones that the people generally looked up to as those who were kind of high and mighty in Judaism. They came with a message The people kind of follow along for the most part as to what the scribes and the Pharisees have to say, but there are other people who are beginning to engage with Jesus. And so this is sort of a roundtable discussion in uh, sort of a way where Jesus is is actually teaching, but he's teaching with feedback, and they're, they're talking to him. And most of their talk back to him is questioning him as to who he is and what he's saying. And so Jesus is trying the best that he can to teach them as they say these things, and he's responding. So these people who are gathered in the temple to listen to Jesus, they make two major assertions, two major assertions here in the text. And the first one is that Abraham is their father. Abraham is their father. Father, look at verse 37. I know that you are Abraham's descendants, yet you seek to kill me because my word has no place in you. I speak the things which I have seen with my father, therefore you also do the things which you heard from your father. And they answered and said to him, Abraham is our father. And Jesus said to them, If you are Abraham's children, then do the deeds of Abraham. But as it is, you're seeking to kill me, a man who has told you the truth, which I heard from God. This Abraham did not do. You are doing the deeds of your father. So as we begin this section, Jesus circles back to acknowledge and clarify the assertion that these people make that they are the physical descendants of Abraham. And of course, we know that to be 100% true. Abraham was the father of the Jewish people. Jesus himself was born uh, of a Jewish mother, and so he too was of Jewish descent. But Jesus wants to make the point that ethnicity is not a rite of passage spiritually. Just because these people were of Jewish descent didn't mean that they had a right relationship with God. And there seems to be a lot of confusion about this even today. Just because the nation of Israel was chosen by God to receive his favor does not mean that every ethnic Jew will receive salvation from their sin. No, heaven is reserved for only those who believe in Christ. This is what Jesus has been saying to them. He says, if you don't believe in me, then you will die in your sins. The gospel is indiscriminate. It is for all people And Jesus, who is the visible, tangible expression of God, the Lagos, in front of these people is sharing with them how they can know for sure that they're going to have eternal life. They must believe in him. And at this point in time, they must believe that he is the promised Messiah of God. If you believe in me, you will have eternal life. But if you do not believe in me, he says, you will die in your sins. And this is where the the rub was with the people in the temple. 
They thought just because they were Jewish, just because they were descendants of Abraham, that they would receive eternal life. But it's not the circumcision of the flesh that matters. It is the circumcision of the heart. This has always been true. All the way back in Deuteronomy chapter 30 and verse 6, Moses spoke to the people of Israel about the chastisement of God if they fail to repent of their sin and turn to God in faith. And speaking of that potential reality, Moses said this, Moreover, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the hearts of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul so that you may live. That's the precursor for what we know as the great commandment, right? The great commandment, when Jesus was asked, what is the greatest commandment? The greatest commandment is that you love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and the second is like it, that you love your neighbor as yourself. This goes all the way back to the Pentateuch, all the way back to the writings of Moses here in Deuteronomy chapter 30 and verse Six, but he references the circumcision of the heart, not just the circumcision of the flesh. And so they identify with Abraham in a physical sense, but they did not identify with him in a spiritual sense. The Apostle Paul also made this very clear in Romans 2, verses 28 and 29, when he said, For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter, and his praise is not from people, but from God. And then later in that same letter to the church at Rome, Paul would say in Romans 9 and verse 6, But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. In other words, God's requirement for eternal life is the same for everyone. Ethnicity has nothing to do with it. I uh, am so grateful as I stand before you each and every week to look out and to see virtually the same people each and every week, who in their busy lives find it to be so important that they have their families here to fellowship with God's people and to listen to God's word. We have really good parents here at Grace Life Church. The investment that you're making in the lives of your children is so vital. It's so important. I was thinking this past week about how grateful I am for my parents. And while I know that that my parents were Christians and that they uh, had their own faith and that faith is not necessarily translated to me or transferred to me, but they had the commitment to have me in church every week. And I've talked to you about the church that I grew up in. There were issues and concerns and problems and things that... um, you know, probably every church deals with in some way, shape, or form. But um, I'm just so grateful for my parents. I literally heard the gospel hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of times as a youth. And God used that in my life. God used His Spirit to convict me of my sin through the hearing of the gospel. And I was able to turn to faith in Jesus Christ. And so what you do and your commitment to have your family here uh, in 
the assembly of other believers to hear God's word is not to be taken lightly. So grateful for my parents. Their faith didn't translate to me. It wasn't transferred to me just because I was their biological son, but because of their commitment to the Lord and their commitment to the local church, they had me each and every week under the hearing of the gospel. But the point is here of what is being stated in the text is that no one has ever been saved because of who their parents are or because of where they were born. Later in that same chapter, in Romans chapter 9, verse 27, Paul would make this point when he said, Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel may be like the sands of the sea, only the believing remnant will be saved. Only those who believe in Christ. And so this is why this encounter with Jesus is so disturbing, because it's obvious that most of these people had rejected Jesus as the Messiah. Their hearts were far from God. And Jesus goes on to say here, he says, I speak the things that are of my Father, and you speak the things that are of your Father. Guess who he's referring to? The devil. Satan. Look at verse 44. You are of your father, the devil. Jesus was not a wimp. Uh, Jesus would speak truth to power. These were the scribes and the Pharisees and all the people that were sitting at their feet. And Jesus, who is the truth, speaks the truth to these people. He draws this clear line in the sand, but the people clap back. They say in verse 39, but Abraham is our father. And Jesus responds to them, if Abraham is your father, then why aren't you doing the deeds of Abraham? Jesus says, I have told you the truth, and yet you still want to kill me. Abraham would never desire to kill me because, unlike you, he was a man of faith. Turn with me to Galatians chapter 3. Paul writes of this in uh, this uh, epistle that were written primarily to churches in South Galatia. So this was one of the few books in the Bible along with Hebrews, one of the epistles that isn't written to a specific person. It's not written to a specific church. It's written to a collection of churches in South Galatia. But, but this is profound, uh, what, what he says here in Galatians chapter 3, beginning with verse 6. Even so, Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Therefore, be sure that it is those who are of faith who are the sons of Abraham. The Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, All the nations will be blessed in you. So then, those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham, the believer. For as many as are of the works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law to perform them. Of course, that was the purpose of the law, right? The purpose of the law was to point them to Christ, ultimately, and to show them that, that none of us can keep the law perfectly. Even the scribes and the Pharisees, who took great pride in keeping the law, and even the, every jot and tittle of the law, they couldn't keep it perfectly. 
For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Verse 11, now that no one is justified by the law, in other words, no one is declared righteous by keeping the law or trying to keep the law because they cannot do it. It is evident, for the righteous man shall live by faith. However, the law is not of faith. On the contrary, he who practices them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. This is substitution. This is the sacrificial atoning work of Christ on the cross. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, in order that in Christ, Jesus, the blessing of Abraham, might come to the Gentiles so that we receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. So, all that to say is the gospel has always been for everyone. God chose Israel as his chosen people, but the gospel was not exclusively for the Jews. It was not exclusively for the people of Israel. It has always been for all people of all time that if they believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, then they will be saved. Salvation has always been by grace through faith in what God has revealed to man. Jesus was the most scrutinized person ever to live. But, but I think it's safe to say that the, the more we identify with Christ, the more we'll be treated like he was treated. Folks, something dramatic happened in the last couple of weeks that we've been praying for for a long time. A virtually unknown U.S. representative from the state of Louisiana by the name of Mike Johnson was just elected as the new Speaker of the House. This means that he's now third in line for the presidency, only behind the sitting president and the vice president. And while I've never met Mike Johnson, I know people who know him. So what I know of him is from other people, but this man, if you've been following, this man has been extremely bold about his faith in Christ. In recent memory, I can't remember someone in this high of office that it has been so forthcoming as to his or her faith in Christ. I'm sure he's counted the cost with this because as we know, no doubt, he knows and we know that some members of the press are going to label him as a right-wing radical. He no doubt knows that every decision he makes will be scrutinized because he's a Christian. He knows that those who oppose him will try and find something in his past to discredit him so that they can label him a hypocrite. He knows that they will parse every word he says and everything he does. His family will be tested. His church will be looked at under a microscope. And his life will never be the same. But I've got to say, from where I sit, it is so refreshing to me to have someone who is an authentic follower of Jesus Christ to just say it just say it bring your bible and lay it down on the lectern in the house of representatives and read it unbelievable i i we are so far away from that being the general practice of those in our country, and now we finally have someone who is standing up for his faith in Christ, standing up for the principles that are found in God's Word, and this guy is going to be crucified. 
Because the more he acts like Christ, the more he'll be treated like Christ. Pray for him. He's not a perfect man. There are probably skeletons in his closet. There are probably issues in his life. There are probably things that people could validly point out. But we need more people who are like him, who are equally bold in their faith. But there's always a cost for those who identify with Jesus. Turn over to John chapter 15. Jesus speaks about this. You see, Jesus never was shy about telling people that if you follow me, it isn't going to be easy. It's not intended to be easy. And when I look at these kinds of things, as we'll read here in a moment in John 15, about what Jesus has to say, it gives me great solace and peace that we really live for an audience of one. Yes, our actions and our words affect other people, and we should be very careful about that. We're not going to be perfect in that, how we say things, where we say things, to whom we say it. All of that uh, is is certainly very human. But Jesus has consistently said to those who are his followers, verse 18, if the world hates you, (laughs) you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, But I chose you out of the world. Because of this, the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you as well. If they followed my word, they will follow yours also. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name. Because they do not know the one who sent me. Consistent. Jesus says the same thing over and over and over. He was sent by the Father to do the will of the Father, to come to the earth to do what no one could do for themselves, Sacrificially, as the substitute of real people who commit real sins, he dies on a real cross for real people. He loved us that much. The interesting thing here in our text is that Jesus is being confronted by religious people. I've been around religious people my whole life. It's only by God's grace that I'm not a little bit jaded. Because what people say is not always how they live. I am reminded of the quote by Charles Spurgeon, which I've used a few times. A man's life is always more forcible than his speech. When men take stock of him, they reckon his deeds as dollars and his words as pennies. All throughout the New Testament, all throughout the Gospels, Jesus is trying to marry up what people say with who they are and what they do. It's easy to say things, and these people are saying things. The scribes and the Pharisees said things, but their hearts were dark. They had never turned to Jesus Christ in faith. And so these people engaging Jesus in the temple began by identifying Abraham as their father, insinuating that that gives them special privileges. 
But in the latter part of verse 41 through verse 47, we find a second assertion, and that is God is their father. So not only do they say that Abraham is their father, they say that God is their father. Look at the second part of verse 41. They said to him, we were not born of fornication, we have one father, God. And Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. For I proceeded forth and have come from the Father, and I have not even come on my own initiative, but he who sent me. Why do you not understand what I am saying? It is because you cannot hear my word. You are, the fa- you are of your father, the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks... He speaks from his own nature, for he's a liar and the father of lies. But because I speak the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I speak truth, why do you not believe me? For he who is of God hears the word of God. For this reason, you do not hear them, because you are not of God. So these people go back to their old playbook And they again questioned Jesus' heritage. Remember, there was a long-standing rumor that Jesus' father was actually a Roman soldier whom his mother had a secret affair with. And so they say, we were not born of fornication like you. We have one father who is our God. This is captivating to me. Because as they claim God as their father, they're talking to God himself. Jesus was God in the flesh. He had come to this earth to reveal God to man. As I was talking to uh, some Jehovah Witnesses uh, fairly recently, they made the point that the word Trinity is not in the Bible. And as if that was the one thing that was going to get me, and that you can't show me Trinity in the Bible, and so therefore, slam dunk, we win. Huh. Good luck with that. I said, well, the word Trinity is a descriptive word. It's from the Latin word Trinitas, and it's a descriptive word that means three in one. This is taught in the Scriptures. Whereas the word Trinity is not used, the concept of the Trinity is what is taught in the, in the Scriptures. And so I went down through with them, and I shared with them, and I showed them how this works. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Three persons, three co-equal, three co-eternal persons who make up the Godhead. Trinity is a word that helps for us to describe this. These people should not be ignorant of what I just said. They should not be ignorant of the three-in-one God. Because back in Isaiah chapter 48 and verse 16, which I think is as as strong uh, of a passage of Scripture in the Old Testament to the Trinity as we can find, it says this from Isaiah the prophet. God, from the beginning, 
It says, I have not spoken in secret. From the time it took place, I was there. And now the Lord God, God the Father, has sent me, God the Son, and his Holy Spirit. So a lot of times we'll say that the Trinity or the full revelation of God is somewhat a mystery in the Old Testament. It's, it, it, it's fully revealed in the New Testament. That's not necessarily true. It's fleshed out in the New Testament, but it was clearly delineated in the Old Testament. But they missed God's intention with that statement. Um, Exodus 4.22, also another passage that Moses recorded, saying that, thus says the Lord, Israel is my son, my firstborn. And again, I think they looked at that corporately, uh, the nation of Israel as a whole, but salvation is not corporate. It's not national. Salvation is personal. Only those who place their faith in Christ will receive eternal life. Not every ethnic Jew will be saved. Only those who repent of their sin and believe in Jesus. So Jesus responds and he says, if God were your father, you would love me because I have come from him. In the sense that Jesus was submissive to the father in coming to the earth. And while he lived on the earth, he was submissive to what the father had sent him to do. Jesus was submissive to the father. He was submissive to the spirit. He was led by the spirit while he was on the earth. But he was God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And this is why the Jehovah Witnesses, the Mormons, and any other cult that denies the deity of Christ must change John 1.1, John 1.14, and so many other passages in the New Testament that decry that Jesus Christ is God. Not just a good person, not just a good teacher, not just bold, when he talked with people, Jesus is God. Jesus isn't shy, as I said earlier, because he tells them who their father really is, the devil. And because he is your true father, you're acting like him. And then Jesus gives the devil's resume he says the devil is a murderer. He's a hater of truth. In fact, whenever he speaks, he lies because he's the father of lies. I think we have time to do this. If you would, turn back to Ezekiel chapter 28. I, uh, I wanted to uh, refresh myself So Ezekiel chapter 28, beginning with verse 11 here. This passage, along with Isaiah chapter 14, we learn of the fall of Lucifer, who was a created angel, who was so welled up with pride that he wanted to become God. And as I read this, it seems from the context here, verse 
uh, 11 through 19, that there's a transition from the previous 10 verses that are dealing with a human leader to more of a dual meaning here with Lucifer at the focus of the discussion. So Ezekiel chapter 28, beginning with verse 11. By the way, Lucifer, uh, the name Lucifer is deduced by what, what his name meant. And I'll, I'll share that in just a moment. But look at verse 11 here. Again, the word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, take up a lamentation over the king of Tyre and say to him, Thus says the Lord God, You had the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering, the ruby, the topaz, and the diamond, the beryl, the onyx, and the jasper, the lapis lazuli, the turquoise, and the emerald, and the gold, the workmanship of your settings and sockets was in you. On the day that you were created, they were prepared. So again, just so I can state the obvious, that Lucifer uh, is a created being. Okay? He, he's not eternal. Uh, there is only one who is eternal. That is God. And Satan is a created being. Lucifer is a created being. Uh, it says here in verse 14, you are the anointed cherub who covers, and I place you there. You are on the holy mountain of God. You walked in the midst of the stones of fire. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created until unrighteousness was found in you. But the abundance of your trade, you were internally filled with violence, and you sinned. And therefore I have cast you as profane from the mountain of God, and I have destroyed you, O covering cherub, for the midst of the stones of fire. Your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom by reason of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. I put you before kings that they may see you. By the multitude of your iniquities, in the unrighteousness of your trade, you profaned your sanctuaries. Therefore, I have brought fire from the midst of you. It has consumed you, and I have turned you to ashes on the earth in the eyes of all who see you. All who know you among the peoples are appalled at you. You have become terrified, and you will cease to be forever. As a result of this heinous sin against God, Lucifer uh, was banished from living in heaven. And we find this in Isaiah chapter 14 and verse 12. And upon his rebellion, his name changed from Lucifer, which means morning star, to Satan, which means adversary. So from this point forward, he would oppose God on every front. He would oppose God's people. And Jesus just said, that's your daddy. That's your father. That's who you are like. As it relates to his ultimate destiny following the second coming of Christ, uh, Satan will be bound in a pit during the thousand-year millennial reign of Christ. We see that in Revelation 20 and verse 3. He'll eventually be thrown into the lake of fire for eternity. We see that in Matthew 25 and verse 41. But for now, he's actively trying to do whatever he can do to turn people away from the one true living God, including these people that Jesus is talking to. But he loses in the end. He loses in the end. Jesus says that Satan is a liar and the father of lies. And in contrast, Jesus says that he's all about the truth. 
And so after drawing these very clear lines, Jesus then opens it up for all the audience to name one sin that he's committed. Just name one. Name one sin that I've committed. Crickets. We have a hard time wrapping our minds around this because we know that Jesus was sinless. We know that he was immutable and that he could not change. We know that Jesus was perfect and holy in all of his ways. So why would people who can't even find one sin that he committed, why would they hate him so much and oppose him so much? And I think it's clear that it's because their hearts were darkened. Oh, Abraham, they said, is their father. Oh, God is their father. How can God be their father when they deny God in the flesh? You see, God is one. We see that in Deuteronomy. God is one. So there's one God. But within the Godhead, there are three co-equal, co-eternal persons. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. We just had some baptisms uh, out at the home of the Summers. And uh, we had, I think, seven uh, different folks from our church who were baptized. And we baptized them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, because that's part of what is stated in Matthew 28, 19, and 20 in the Great Commission that we're to do. The Bible teaches the impeccability of Christ, which means that Jesus, because of his divine nature, could not have committed sin. There was no chance. No chance. Doesn't mean that he wasn't tempted. No, Hebrews 4.15 says he was tempted in all points as man, yet without sin. Listen to Matthew 13, beginning with verse 36, and the parable of the weeds explained. Then he left the crowds, and he went into the house, and his disciples came to him and said, explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. And he said, well, the the one who sows the good seed is the son of man, and the field is the world. And so for the good seed, these are the sons of the kingdom, and the weeds are the sons of the evil one. And the enemy who is sowed them is the devil, and the harvest is at the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. So just as the weeds are gathered up and burned with fire, so it shall be in the end of the age. The Son of Man will send forth his angels. They will gather out his kingdom, all stumbling blocks, and those who commit lawlessness, and they will be thrown into the furnace of fire. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, and then the righteous will shine forth like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. The one who has ears, let him hear. Jesus said, You're all weeds. You're all weeds. All of you are weeds. The scribes, the Pharisees, all the people that follow them, you're all weeds. So we we look at this today and we go, who is our spiritual father? We know our biological father, but who's our spiritual father? And really, Jesus says there are really only two possible options. Either God is your father or the devil is your father. And I was thinking this week, you know, 
really for us as Christians, and I so appreciated John's prayer this morning. For us as Christians, every day should be Father's Day for us. We should live our lives for our Father. I remember when I was a kid that I wanted to please my dad. I wanted to do what would please him. And so I didn't do certain things because I knew it would, it would displease him. And I was constantly thinking about how I can please my dad, how I can please my dad. When I went to school and I was around other people and they wanted to do things that I knew we shouldn't do, how can I please my dad? How can I please my father? And that was a huge part of why I did and didn't do things as a kid, just to be honest. And I think if your kids were honest, dads, they want to please you. But on a spiritual plane, I wonder, was I that consumed with the thought about how do I please my heavenly Father? You see, ultimately, that is what is important for the Christian. If every day is Father's Day for the Christian, then we should wake up every day asking ourselves, how can we best please our Father? Who is your father? This is at the heart of the text today. Who is your father? Certainly a question that is worthy of our contemplation and our thoughts. Let's pray. Lord, before we celebrate the sacrificial death of your son, the Lord Jesus, who you sent to this earth, may we just pause and thank you for being our father Thank you for loving us, even though we're sometimes not very lovable. Sometimes we disappoint you and we sin against you. And even though we have believed in your son, we have got to bring you grief at times. And Lord, today for us, as we contemplate this text about really getting at the heart of who our spiritual father is, May we, in our own hearts and minds, view each and every day as Father's Day. The day that we can celebrate you and Jesus, where we can honor you with our lives, where we can be filled by your Spirit to live lives that are authentic, pleasing to you. Thank you for being our Father. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.